This is the Mark Podcast from Lifeway Women. We're your hosts, Elizabeth Heineman and Kelly King. Each episode, we'll talk about what God is doing, how He has and is marking each of us. Sometimes that will be through interviews, and sometimes we'll have conversations around the table. We're so glad you've joined us today. We love connecting with you on social media. We'll bring encouragement, scripture, giveaways, and more to your social media feed. Be sure to follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Lifeway Women. Hello, and welcome to the Mark Podcast. I am Elizabeth Heineman, and I am here with my co-host, Kelly King. Hey, Kelly. Hey, Elizabeth. Let's tell our audience a little bit about what's happening this summer. I know. It is so exciting. So we have been, for the past few summers, we have been blessed and able to release to y'all the audio teaching from some of our Bible studies. And we are so excited because this summer we are bringing to you, to your ears, the audio sessions of How Much More, a Bible study by Lisa Harper. And so tell us a little bit more about how this is all going to work, Kelly. Absolutely. So on Mondays, we'll release one new audio teaching session each week. And we're going to leave all of the episodes up until the end of August, so August 31st. So if you get a couple weeks behind or maybe you're on vacation, we want to make sure that you're able to catch up and do that. So what we want you to do is we want you to go to lifeway.com slash how much more, and we really want you to purchase the Bible study book because it's going to help you really learn more than just listening to the audio, but work alongside of it with the study book. And that link is going to be in the show notes as well. And we just know that y'all are going to be so blessed by this study. And so we're excited to get to bring it to you. So here is Lisa Harper. Uh, y'all have heard me talk so many times about my little girl, Missy, and I tell so many stories about Missy that I thought it would probably be appropriate for me to tell a story with Missy. So you can kind of breathe a sigh of relief here at the beginning of session four of how much more, because we're not going to talk about gazelles or grapes. (laughs) We're going to start this session with my baby girl's testimony. So um, when did you come to know Jesus as your Savior? When I was eight. Yes, old. You were eight years old. You and remember? it was about Christmas time. It was Christmas time. And do you remember you told me you didn't want to get baptized right then because you didn't really understand what baptism was, right? Right. So we started talking about it, and we started talking about how to be baptized is when you express outside what God has done inside, right? Right. And do you remember when you went to Sunday school and they did a lesson about baptism? Do you remember when you came home and where you told me you wanted to be baptized? In the Jordan River. (laughs) That's right. She came home and said, Mama, I've decided I'm ready to be baptized and I want to be baptized in the Jordan River. You know, we live, you know, about 20 miles south of Nashville, Tennessee. And so I thought, that's a, that's a pretty tall order. And what was just so cool of the Lord, you've been talking about how much more 
His love for us is than we, than we usually pray for. Um, about a month after she told me she wanted to be baptized in the Jordan, I got a call from Lifeway, very graciously invited me to join them on a trip to Israel with Lisa Turkhurst. And so a year and a half ago, Missy and I got to go to Israel. And you remember we were late. We were like two days late to join the tour because we we're coming from another place. Do you remember that? I do. You remember we were coming from Australia. 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 And so we missed the first two days of the tour, so we didn't get to go to the traditional baptism site. You remember the real pretty one with all the clear water? Yes, we you remember that? Do. do you remember where we joined the tour, what site we joined the tour on? The south Yeah, the, the south side of the Sea of Galilee. Y'all, if you haven't been to Israel, that's where the Jordan River is is not very impressive because it's come out of the Sea of Galilee. It's, it's taken on a little bit of agricultural runoff. Some clean water <laughs> advocates say there could be just a, just a smidge of sewage in it at that point. And then that's where it goes into the Dead Sea. So that's basically where the Jordan River dies. And so do you remember what the Jordan River looked like when we got there to the south side? It was muddy and brown. <laughs> kind of gross. It was kind of gross. gross. Do you remember what the weather was like that day? Rainy and cold. It was cold. It was really, really cold. And it do you was. remember when we got there and we walked down to the water's edge and we saw that muddy river? Do you remember that you were like, I'm not so sure I want to be baptized now? <laughs> yes, <laughs> You remember? Um, but remember we talked about as muddy and kind of unimpressive as it was, that that's where most of the miracles took place, remember? I do remember. Do you remember how the Israelites, kind of at that spot, that's where the Israelites crossed over into the Promised Land? Yes, ma'am. And then do you remember how, how Elijah, that prophet, he stood right there and God sent a supernatural Uber to whisk him up into heaven. Mom, that was a chariot. Yeah, well, <laughs> it was a chariot, but, but God sent it down. And then remember that's where John the Baptist baptized Jesus? Yes. And we talked about that. And so then I said, baby, even though it's gross and, and brown and muddy, do you still want to be baptized here? Do you remember what you said? Yes, ma'am, I do. What'd you say? I do. <laughs> Almost sounds like a wedding vow. Thank you. Thank you for sharing your testimony with us. I'm proud of you. You're welcome. Okay, I'll see you in a minute. I'll see you Bye, in a minute. Bye, Mom. <laughs> do y'all do y'all remember, um, those of y'all who are around my age, maybe a little younger, but not those of y'all that still have tight skin and high metabolism, because this was like 20 years ago, they used to have these commercials where a van would pull up to a house and Ed McMahon would get out with a huge check and tell him they won the publisher's clearing house. I feel that every day. Every day I wake up and I go, oh, it's so much more than I dared to dream, much less pray. I can't quite believe I got to dunk my daughter, my daughter in the Jordan River where John the Baptist baptized you. I mean, I just, you know, sometimes you go, this is like somebody's making this up on social media. You know how when you take pictures and you put the camera real high so you look skinnier? I mean, I almost sometimes feel like that's 
what part of my life is. It's so, it's so much more redeemed than I ever hoped it could be. Um, the day after uh, Missy and I got to be at the Jordan, the very next day we were at the Western Wall in Jerusalem. And the Western Wall, sometimes tourists call it the Wailing Wall. Um, it's that wall um, at the edge of the Temple Mount that is no longer under Israeli authority. That's basically the last remnant that Jewish image bearers have of the temple. And the temple was destroyed in 70 AD. And so they'll go to that Western wall. The stones are Herodian. They're over 2000 years old. Christy McClellan could tell you much better detail. I'll just give you the, the general cliff notes. But, but uh, Jews and tourists alike will go to that wall and they'll usually lean their foreheads against the wall and they will lament they'll lament the destruction of the temple and the desecration of the holy city, and they will pray for God, for Yahweh, Jehovah, to restore uh, the temple, to restore Jerusalem. And so when you visit Israel, it's very common for, an Israel, for someone who's visiting Israel to go to that Western Wall um, at a place for Gentiles, non-Jews, and you pray at the wall, and then it's very commonplace to bring a small handwritten prayer because there's cracks in that wall and millions of prayers have been pushed in those cracks. And so the day after I had the undeserved privilege of being with two pastors and baptizing my daughter in the Jordan River at the muddy spot where all the miracles took place or most of them, I got to walk with my daughter to the Western Wall to put in a prayer and to pray. Um, this was my third visit to Israel. My first visit was in 1998 with a small group of women with Kay Arthur. And I remember going to the wall with Kay. I don't remember what I wrote on the prayer that I put in in 1998. My second trip to Israel was in the year 2000 during the week of Yom Kippur as the highest holy day in the Jewish calendar. And um, I remember exactly what I wrote on that prayer. I was 40 years old. And by then I felt like God had pulled the most toxic roots of shame and brokenness out of my heart and my mind. And so I made this really bold request. I wrote on a slip of prayer that if it would please God, um, if he would restore the bad decisions I made romantically and relationally, and if he would give me a family. And I can still remember pushing that prayer into a crack in the Western Wall. Nineteen years later, I walked toward that wall with my daughter. And I, I prayed about what to write on the slip of paper that we were gonna put in the wall. And all I could think of was two words. I'm a windbag, y'all know that by now. I have a lot of words, but the only words that felt appropriate on April 1st, 2019 were thank you, thank you. And I let Missy push that prayer into that crack. And I just thought only God only God 
could redeem my story to this point. Only God, I've made so many foolish decisions. I've been fearful, I've been afraid. I've seen this as a rule book instead of a love story. And God is so kind. He's so extraordinarily redemptive that I got to dunk my baby girl in the Jordan and I got to say thank you. Thank you for giving me the family that I didn't earn, that I didn't deserve. Thank you, thank you, thank you, Jesus. Y'all, I want to reiterate something we said in session three. This isn't a rule book. This is not a collection of benign morality tales. This is a supernatural love story. I believe with all my heart that if we will take the time to actually peruse the promises that God breathed, I think we'll all be undone by redemption. I think we'll all go, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. We're going to look at a parable in the Gospel of Luke in this session. Before we dive into Luke 11, I want to go real quickly to Matthew 13. So if you brought your Bible, turn to Matthew's Gospel account, Matthew 13. And the reason we're starting in Matthew before we dive into a parable in Luke is because I think all too often Christians uh, kind of marginalize the parables. I grew up in church, and, and for decades I thought the parables were children's stories. I thought they were just these kind of innocuous tales that were simplistic They usually have two or three characters in them, so they're relatively easy to understand, or so I thought. And so when I got a little older, I kind of pushed the parables aside because I thought, you know, I'm much too sophisticated for parables now. (laughs) And it's just been this wonderful revelation, revelation, I think is the way you pronounce that, that these stories are anything but simplistic. Actually, when Jesus told these stories in his earthly ministry in the first century, they were, they were provocative. They were just crazy controversial. These were not innocuous, simplistic stories he told. There's about 2,000 parables written by rabbis and all kinds of different writings. Uh, Jesus told about 40. There's some, uh, there's some disagreement over a couple of the stories at, at, as to whether they actually are parabolic in nature, but he told around 40, somewhere between 38 and 42, based on most theologians. But I want to tell you the context of parabolic literature, and the best way to understand that is from Matthew's Gospel, a discourse Jesus had with his disciples, verse 10 of Matthew 13. Then the disciples came and said to him, they said to Jesus, Why do you speak to them in parables, in stories? And he answered them, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. For to one who has, more will be given. And he will have an abundance, but from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away." This is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, you will indeed hear, but never understand, and you will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart 
has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. I don't know if you can really hear what Jesus is saying there, but he's saying the point isn't to amass a bunch of followers on social media. We've gotten so distorted in culture in that we think the gospel is supposed to be something that makes us popular. The gospel has never trended, y'all. Jesus said, this truth will divide. So for those of us that want to hang on to popularity and to have all these likes in culture, It is really, really impossible to hang on to the authority of Holy Writ and go, anything goes. Our culture says, oh, Jesus sounds pretty cool. I like the accessible part of Jesus. I like the warm, fuzzy part of Jesus. But the exclusivity, when Jesus says in John 14, 6, I'm the only way you can be reconciled into a right relationship with God the Father. Our culture doesn't really like that. Our culture wants Jesus to be a way, not the way. And he says to his disciples, I tell these stories both to reveal and to conceal. I tell them to compel and to repel. These stories will divide. I'll tell stories that seekers and true believers will go, oh, that's a different kind of kingdom. That's not like the world we live in. I want me some of that. And people who are scoffers will go, I don't agree with that. And they walk away fussing about how Yeshua is just talking about stuff that that isn't realistic. And that's what's going on in our culture. I'm telling you, the gospel is dividing now more than I've ever seen it before. And I'm seeing a whole lot of people who call themselves Christians going, eh, I kind of want the easy way out. And I go, he never told us it would be easy. He said we would be loved with a love that is higher and wider and deeper than we can possibly ask or imagine. But he never said it would be easy. Never said it would be easy. Luke 11 is a story we're going to look at tonight. I love Luke as a writer. Luke is the only writer of Holy Writ who was a known Gentile. So he's not Jewish. There's a few books in our canon that are formally classified as anonymous. But Luke, Dr. Luke, he was a physician before he became an evangelist. He's the only known Gentile. And what that means is he was basically an outsider. And so there's this compassion in Luke's gospel that, in my opinion, is unlike the other literature in Holy Writ. All right, y'all, before we dive into the parable itself, I want to just read you something that I think will clarify what I've been trying to say, that the parables are, they're, they're just not simplistic. They're so cool. This is from a smart guy named Klein Snodgrass, and he explains that the Wizard of Oz, I don't know if y'all have heard this before. The first time I heard this was two years ago, and it just, it was kind of one of those wow moments. He says, few people are even aware that the Wizard of Oz is an elaborate political allegory about conditions at the beginning of the 20th century in the USA with Oz 
being the abbreviation for ounce, and the yellow brick road, both referring to the gold standard, which was debated at the time, the scarecrow representing the farmers, the tin man, the industrial workers, and the cowardly lion reformers, especially William Jennings Bryan. It is a perfectly good story, understandable in its own right, but both enjoyable and powerful when the lens of intent is in its place. Did y'all know that about The Wizard of Oz? That there's this whole other backstory that kind of makes the points even deeper. That's the parables. They're not simplistic. There's these deep truths, very provocative, kind of divisive things that Jesus is saying about the kingdom of God. So now let's dive into the story that I hope I've built up appropriately. This is Luke chapter 11, beginning in verse 5. And he said to them, which of you has a friend? will go to him at midnight and say to him, friend, lend me three loaves for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, do not bother me. The door is now shut and my children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you though, he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend. Yet because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. And I tell you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children. How much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? You see where the title of this Bible study came from. It comes from Luke 11. This parable, it's formally classified as a didactic parable. That means it has, it has two characters. So you've got the, the sleeping father, the drowsy daddy, and then you've got the persistent, insistent neighbor. Most of Jesus' parables have two or three characters. Anytime Jesus uses a father figure, as in the prodigal son, that father figure in parabolic symbolism loosely describes God the Father. Now, in this case, there's some disagreement on, on who the insistent or impudent neighbor, who he represents. Some scholars say he represents unbelievers. Some just say you know, he represents somebody who isn't God. But you've got this insistent neighbor, and then you've got this character, this drowsy daddy representing God. That's the didactic parable. That's the, that's the two characters. And the symbolism here seems a little in modern culture, shocking. Because it's the middle of the night and this neighbor is so impudent that this neighbor in the middle of the night comes over to the drowsy daddy's house and covers the ring doorbell with his thumb and then starts banging on the door just demanding hot biscuits. It just, it, it almost doesn't make sense, doesn't it? It seems hyperbolic. I was in a hotel recently and I'd fallen asleep 
and somebody just started banging on my door. Now, a couple of months prior to that, we had a big um, fire at a hotel where I was, and somebody banged on my door screaming fire, and we had to leave the hotel at two o'clock in the morning. And so I think that was in the back of my mind when I woke up and somebody's banging on my door. So I just kind of got up and ran to the door, but I had the presence of mind not to completely open it. This door had a chain, and I just opened you know, just enough. And when I open it just enough, there is this strange guy, not in a hotel uniform, with Albert Einstein hair reeking of Bud Light, and he reached his arm through the crack. And I realized pretty quickly, oh my goodness, based on his mumbled apology and the name he's using, I'm pretty sure his estranged girlfriend is in the room next to me. And so my brain was telling me that, but my immediate response was just, and I just, I just karate chopped him because it just, you know how you're like, you're not supposed to get in my room. I mean, it just throws you. And that's almost kind of the shock in this parable, even the word there to describe that, that persistent stranger. It says because of his impudence in verse 8, that word there, um, your Bible may say shameless, that, that word there in the original Greek is anadia. Anadia. It is the only time, I think this is so cool, I'm kind of a word nerd. It's the only time that word is used in Holy Writ. You won't find that exact word anywhere else in the Bible. Anadia. Perfect, tran perfect translation is shameless, but it's a shocking kind of persistence, impudence, shameless. You have to go outside the Bible, outside canonical literature to get a little more context for this term. Josephus, he was a, a Jewish historian, a cont contemporary of Jesus Christ. Josephus uses that exact word, anadia, 17 times in his writings. And in every single case, it's pejorative, it's negative. He uses that exact word to describe how Nero was a liar. He said the anadia, the shameless lies of Nero. Now stop and think Jesus is telling this story. And he says, the daddy is asleep in bed. But because of the shameless, isn't it wild he used that word? Because of the shameless persistence of the neighbor, and remember the context, the neighbor didn't even ask him for biscuits for himself. He's not even asking for that. He's asking for biscuits for a dude who came to his house in the middle of the night. So it's like double shameless. And because of his insistence, that dad gets up and gives him bread. That's one of the main takeaways of this parable is to be shameless in the way we present everything to God. Don't dumb down your prayer request. I wasn't going to tell anybody at 40 that I was actually going to the Western Wall to ask God to redeem my story and give me a child because I was too afraid people would go, don't you think that's a little much? That's kind of audacious that you would think at this point God would give you a baby girl because you're 40 years old. The point of this parable is nothing is too audacious to bring before our Father because He loves us. So you bring the boldest request to Him. He's good. He's kind. He's perfect. He will sort it out. 
He's not a vending machine. That doesn't mean you're going to get everything you ask for, but he is a good God and he's redemptive. So that's, that's the basic takeaway from this parable, but it gets so much better because there's a third character, a tertiary character that we almost always look past when we read this story. We tend to emphasize the, the asking and the seeking and the knocking part. And we skip right over the fact that there are children in this parable. Before we reread the end of that parable, I want to read you something, another takeout from interpreting the parables. Any of you word nerds, this is best book I've ever read on the parables. It's from one of my professors, Dr. Craig Blomberg at Denver Seminary. And one of his contemporaries, who is a modern-day rabbi, Joseph Stern, he explains this about how different their culture is. He says, hospitality was considered a sacred duty in the Jewish community, even when the visitor was a stranger. In this case, the visitor was a friend. It was unthinkable that the neighbor would refuse the request, even if it meant rising off the straw mat on which husband, wife, and children slept, huddled together, unlocking the creaky latch, opening the door, and waking the children, the neighbor would comply. Rabbi Stern goes on to explain that during the era of Jesus, earthly ministry, it actually would have been considered shameless or outrageous to not get up if someone banged on your door, even if it was in the middle of the night and they needed something. But then they go on to emphasize this character that we usually miss. It's, it's the fact that that drowsy daddy's children were asleep right next to him. Missy and I got to go to Montana this summer, it was our first trip after COVID had started, and Levi and Jenny Lusco very graciously invited us to come visit their church, Fresh Life, in Kalispell, Montana. And so we hadn't flown in a long time, of course, because of COVID restrictions. And we had a really, really early flight out of Nashville, and then we had a long flight delay in Chicago. So by the time we got to big sky country, we were both dragging a little bit. And so when we got to our hotel, I said, hey, baby, how about we go for a hike? You're in the gorgeous mountains there in Montana. I said, how about we go for a hike just to kind of, you know, stretch our legs, get some fresh air in our lungs. And she wasn't very excited about that. So I said, okay, well, how about we just go for a walk around the lake? That'll be a lot shorter, won't be very strenuous, but we can still get some fresh air and stretch our legs. And she wasn't interested in that. And so I said, well, you know, their, their downtown is just right right down from the hotel and we could walk down there and you know, I'll, I'll get you something to eat. Missy loves sausage, sausage biscuits, by the way. I wasn't sure they had them in Montana, but I thought I'll get her some carbs or sugar, you know, just <laughs> kind of get her to be a, a little less grumpy. And she didn't want to go to the downtown area. And then I brought out my piece de resistance. Missy loves to swim. And I don't love hotel pools. I feel like they're just you know, just floating pools of bacteria. Um, but I, I said, how about we go to the hotel pool? I had an indoor pool, heated pool. And I said, how about we go to the hotel pool? And she wasn't interested in that. And so I finally clued in, I think I'm the problem here. And so I said, baby, am I getting on your nerves? And she said, yes, ma'am. 
And then she added real quickly, does that hurt your feelings, Mom? And I said, no, baby, that doesn't hurt my feelings. And so I explained to her that it is absolutely normal for a mama to get on a child's nerves, uh, especially when we're tired, especially when it's been a long day, especially when the kid is navigating the turbulent waters of puberty, which I can hardly believe. It's amazing how fast time passes, isn't it? I said, no, baby, that, that's, not, that's not inappropriate at all, and it doesn't hurt my feelings. It's totally normal. I said, how about this, honey? How about we just draw an imaginary line right down the middle of this hotel room? And I said, I'll stay on this side because I have a lot of studying to do, and I'll just stay on this side and study, and you can stay on your side, and you can finish your homework, and then you can watch a movie on your iPad, okay? And she was real sweet. You know, she's typically not disrespectful. She's, you can tell she doesn't have my DNA because she's just, she's just a good kid, but she's a normal kid. And she said, okay. And so we stayed in that peaceful but separate arrangement for several hours until it was time to go to sleep. And so we got ready for bed and brushed our teeth and I turned out the light. And I hadn't been in my bed for more than, at the most, five minutes when I heard this little whisper from Missy's bed. And she said, Mama, are you awake? And I said, I am, baby. And she said, Mama, will you cross over the line and get in my bed and rub my back? Because I don't think I'm going to be able to sleep tonight if you don't cuddle me. <laughs> Y'all, she didn't have to go outside of our hotel room and bang on the door to get my attention. She's my daughter. All she had to do was whisper. I want to give her what she requests. How much more? How much more does our Heavenly Father long to bless His children? What Father among you? If his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, if you parents who tend to be distracted, if you single mamas at 57 who sometimes lose your impatience, if you still give your children good gifts, how? much more. Luke uses a rhetorical device there. It's called a fortiori logic. It's a fancy Latin phrase, and it means from the lesser to the greater. It's used a couple of times in Scripture to help us understand if you've experienced good love from a human, Magnify that times a million, times infinity. How much more does our Creator, Redeemer, give us unconditional love, give us perfect intimacy, give us peace that's beyond our circumstances? How much more does God love us than most of us even have the faith to pray for? 
would you reach your hands toward those saints around you? Don't touch them. And I'm going to ask those of you who are, who are joining our little family via video, I'm going to ask you to do the same thing. I'm going to ask you to just reach your hands. It doesn't matter what, what church you're in, what denominational stream you're in. This is just kind of like Missy's baptism. It is an outward sign of an inward grace. You don't have to be Pentecostal to lay hands on somebody or almost lay hands on somebody. It's just a sign that I'm praying for you, that I'm praying for you even as I pray for myself, that we would have eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts that would understand more fully how much more God loves us. In light of the context of this parable, I wanna encourage you right now to bring a bold request towards your Creator, Redeemer. Some of y'all are in marriages that you wonder if they're gonna make it another couple of months. Some of you, like me, are single. And if you're anything like me, sometimes you, you wish you had somebody to help. Sometimes you just go, Lord, I'm not sure I can keep doing this by myself. Some of you got a bad report recently from a physician, and you need to be reminded that we are aliens and strangers here. So regardless of whether God, who can do anything, who tends to start at impossible, regardless of whether He heals your physical body, He is in control. And you need to be reminded right now that He is for you and He is with you. Some of you are experiencing great grief. And right now, if you could write a prayer and poke it in between the ancient stones of that Western wall, you would say, God, I just need to feel your presence. I'm so sad. I don't feel like I can lift my head. My heart is so broken. I'm not sure it can breathe again. Would you carry that? to the God who loves you more than you can possibly ask or imagine? Would you carry that honest, bold request to Him right now? Father, thank You that You tell us in Your Word that You will supply all of our needs according to Your glorious riches in Christ Jesus. Thank You, Lord, that You also tell us that You know what our requests are even when we can't wrap words around them. Thank You that You promise You will give us everything we need for life and godliness in a world that increasingly doesn't acknowledge you as the King, as the Redeemer, as our Savior. Lord, give us the grace to lean in more than ever before, to believe bigger that you are the King of all kings, you are the Lord of all lords, and you are also our intimate Savior who reaches down your nail-scarred hands and tilts our faces back up to focus the attention of our hearts and our minds back on you and your provision and your authority when we just get so distracted by life and by busybody neighbors. Thank you, Lord, that you're always kind. We love you, Jesus. Help us to rest in your affection. Amen and amen and amen.
Thanks so much for listening. If you want to join in on the conversation, you can find us on Twitter and Instagram at Kelly D. King and at E.D. Heineman. Use the hashtag MarkedPodcast to connect with us. You can also find Lifeway Women on all social media channels at Lifeway Women. All of today's show notes will be posted at LifeWayWomen.com slash podcast. If you love the show, leave an iTunes review. It's a great way for other people to hear about the podcast. We'll see you next time.